theoretically, if you could put on therapy, everyone or almost everyone who is infected and get to people who are at risk, a drug that's called PrEP, you can end the epidemic quickly, tomorrow, if you did that. But, you know, we don't live in a theoretical world. We live in a real world. So Hi, everyone. It's Ed Chung. And I'm Daniela Gibbs-Leger. And welcome to another episode of Thinking Cap. Uh, this week, Daniela has a great interview with Dr. Tony Fauci. He's an immunologist and director of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. He's one of the foremost experts on infectious diseases, such as HIV, AIDS, malaria, as well as emerging diseases such as Ebola and Zika. So that interview will be coming up in a little bit. But before we jump into the show for this week, we've got some news we wanted to tease for all of you thinking cappers out there. It's about a new podcast that we will launch very, very soon, hosted by yours truly, Danielle and me. And we just wanted to make sure you caught wind of it now so you can prepare yourselves. We'll be dropping breadcrumbs throughout the next couple of weeks, so be sure to follow us on Twitter to stay up to date. Yeah, and to do that, be sure you check out the Thinking Cap uh, Twitter handle, which is Thinking Cap Pod, Thinking Cap P-O-D, for the latest on this new project. Or follow Daniela and me directly. Mine is at Ed Chung DC, Ed Chung DC. And mine is... At dgibber123, that's at D-G-I-B-B-E-R-123, we are super excited to share the news with you all, so please stay tuned. So now for this week, the real news um, in terms of what's going on in this country. And again, just amazing how crazy uh, th- just things that are happening um, out of Washington across the country, especially with this administration. So the Trump administration, according to reports from NPR, announced a new rule that's targeting legal immigration. And it's a rule that is focused on what's called uh, a public charge. Uh, the rule denies green cards and visas to immigrants if they use or are deemed likely to need uh, federal, state, local government benefits like food stamps or vouchers or even Medicaid. Um, and there, this is a really class-based um, and racially charged uh, policy that they're looking at. And even just recently, in the last couple of days, um, the, uh, a DHS official, Ken Cuccinelli, who was the former attorney general in the state of Virginia, um, he said a, a, an amazingly just shocking thing regarding the Statue of Liberty when, when you're talking about bring me your p- poor and your tire and your huddle masses, that that was meant for, that was written by and meant for Europeans who were coming from a class-based system. And it's just, you want to continue to bang your head (laughs) against the wall and become unconscious and numb to all of this. This is just absolutely horrifying and ridiculous. Yeah, you know, he said the quiet part out loud, right? It's like, this is (laughs) Stephen Miller's, like, ultimate dream, right, is to reduce legal immigration but reduce legal immigration of people who aren't white. Like that is what he wants to have happen and that is what the genesis of this rule is. And if I am not mistaken, if this rule was in place many, many years ago, Ken Cuccinelli's great, great grandparents would not have been led into this country. So like the rank hypocrisy, which I feel like I talk about every week on this show with this administration, it just, it knows 
no bounds. And we also remember the the media reports of a Trump comment, um, you know, at a fundraiser that he called some countries uh, in an expletive, s expletive, and that he also uh, reportedly had said that he wanted. Uh, more immigrants to come from Scandinavian countries as well. Well, people were kind of disputing that, saying that those are only reports. You don't even have to rely on that anymore. This rule and the public statements that Trump administration officials are making, just verify that, validate that, and should scare America. If you guys want to know more about this rule, why it's terrible, and what you can do uh, to speak out against it, you can always visit our website, AmericanProgress.org. You talk about what's happening um, across the world in Hong Kong over the past couple of weeks, something that really I feel like has only been starting to get the attention it deserves in the past day or so. But honestly, it needs more attention. There have been protests against the government, against um, China uh, happening in the streets. They managed to shut down the airport, which is a major international airport uh, the other day. Uh, And I, I feel like, again, it's not getting a lot of attention here. You know, it's it's complicated. You know, Hong Kong was a complicated uh, situation. But what is not complicated and what is not um, what is very clear to me is that there is a lack of strategy, policy, moral authority, leadership, any of that coming from this administration. Where is where is Donald Trump? Like, wh- what have they been saying? What has this administration been doing? I know my colleagues on our national security team have been saying for a very long time that our administration has an incoherent at best policy towards... <laughs> towards everything. Towards everything. everything yeah. <laughs> but Asia particularly. Uh, and it has just been really stark this week. We've got to remember how this particular uh, protest started. It was with a rule that people in Hong Kong would be extradited to mainland China to then be uh, tried and, and prosecuted there if they were committing crimes in uh, in Hong Kong. And it reminds me, like, you look at back at uh, the issues facing America as well, even when you look at our Constitution, the issues of, of what the government does in terms of criminal cases and prosecutions, they're at the core of virtually every single thing that a democracy fights for. The Bill of Rights, you know, five out of the ten uh, amendments of the first, amendment, uh, first ten amendments are about the power of the government, curbing the power of the government to arrest and investigate, whether it's unreasonable searches and seizures, whether it is right to trial by jury, whether it's the right to counsel. Those are the, uh, the key parts of our Bill of Rights. And so when you're talking about democracies and democracies flourishing around the country, we have to make sure that we understand criminal justice justice issues are at the center and at the core of all of that. Um, but we also have some other news that for us personally is it's sad for us. It's extremely sad. You guys can't see me, but I'm, I'm looking sad. It's a very and I'm, sad face emoji right And there. I'm looking sadly at Kyle, our producer, who is producing his last show for Thinking Cap. Uh, Kyle is is leaving us for, yes, it's a great opportunity. I'm very happy for you, blah, blah, blah. But (laughs) let's just bring it back to me and how sad I'm going to be to not see your smiling face. (laughs) Uh, But seriously, it's been so great to work with you over the past couple of months. Um, You know, you have provided, you know, not just great editorial guidance and, and production, but, you know, your dope beats 
that introduced the show. Your your what was that? Dope beats. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. Yeah. So <laughs> we're gonna miss you. I sort of wish you good luck, whatever. But I but I still look forward to like seeing your hot takes on social media. Kyle, you got anything to say? I guess not. All right. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And now here's a uh, D's interview with Dr. Tony Fauci. Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us on Thinking Cap. It's good to be with you. Really excited to talk to you about a couple of really important issues uh, in the healthcare space. Uh, but I really want to start and, and dig into your work over the decades um, preventing uh, HIV and AIDS. And, you know, according to the CDC, there are approximately 1.1 million people who are living now with HIV in the U.S. And I know that uh, President Donald Trump has recently pledged to eliminate the HIV epidemic in the U.S. by 2030. Right. Um, and more recently, the, the United Nations, as you know, but our listeners may not, uh, released a report that found both hopeful and troubling signs in the global fight to end the epidemic. So I'd love to get your take on, you know, how would you characterize the state of progress uh, in the fight against HIV and AIDS in recent years? Well, I think it's important to look at it from two perspectives, the first being the scientific tools that we have to literally end the epidemic both globally and, as you alluded to just a moment ago, in the United States. When we say end it, we really mean ending it as an epidemiological phenomenon. I don't think you're going to eliminate it or eradicate it, but end it as an outbreak, as it were, Mm -hmm. uh, which it is right now. So we have a, a bunch of tools, a couple of which have been proven in clinical studies to be extraordinarily effective. One, we have drugs that when you treat a person who is already infected with HIV, you accomplish two things. One, if you get the level of virus to below detectable, you not only save the life of that individual, and we've proven that multiple, multiple, multiple times now, you essentially transform that person from someone who normally would have had a death sentence who could actually live almost a normal lifespan. But the other advantage of that is if you bring down the level of virus to below detectable, you make it essentially impossible for that person to transmit the virus to an uninfected sexual partner. Mm -hmm. That's called treatment as prevention. Then there's a thing called pre-exposure prophylaxis, which means if you give a person who is not infected, but who is at risk of being infected, namely practicing high-risk behavior, and you gave them a single pill of a drug that contains two antivirals, that drug is generally Travada, and give it to that person, you can decrease by about 97% the likelihood that that person will acquire HIV infection. So if you look at those two interventions together, theoretically, if you could put on therapy everyone or almost everyone who is infected and get to people who are at risk, a drug that's called PrEP Mm -hmm. or pre-exposure prophylaxis. Theoretically, if you implemented that to its fullest, you can end the epidemic quickly tomorrow if you did that. But you know, we don't live in a theoretical world. We live in a real world. So the real issue is how well we implement the interventional tools that we already have. This treatment is prevention as well as this pre-exposure prophylaxis. Mm -hmm. 
And that's really the challenge. And then when we were talking, as you mentioned, about the plan to end the epidemic in the United States, the thing that we concentrated on is that we already have the tools to do it. How can we possibly implement it to its maximum? And if you look at both what we call hotspots in the United States, there are demographic hotspots and there are geographic hotspots. There's a great disparity of infection in the United States. 13% of the United States population is African American, yet about 43 to 44% of all the new infections are among African Americans, and about 65% of them are among men who have sex with men, and 75% of them are among young people. So if you could access the African American people who are at risk or who are infected, particularly, I mentioned African American, but also Latino, transgender women who are having sex with men who are young, and you could get them either into treatment or prevention, you could then focus the implementation of your, of your program. But even as important is what we call geographic hotspots. If you look at the map of the United States, mm -hmm. there are 3,007 counties in the United States. Yet, more than 50% of all of the new infections have occurred in 48 of those counties plus the District of Columbia and San Juan, Puerto Rico. So that's amazing. 50 localities, 48 counties, and then the District of Columbia and San Juan, out of 3,007 of those counties, has more than 50% of the new infections. And there are a bunch of states, seven southern states, in which there's a disproportionate amount of infection in rural areas as opposed to the city. So the plan that the president announced in the State of the Union address on February 5th of this year, based on the plan that was put together by a group of us at the Department of Health and Human Services, is something that we are looking at from an implementation standpoint. If we can get the various agencies, the CDC, HRSA with the Ryan White program, the NIH, SAMHSA, the Indian Health Service, and we can get them, all of us, to implement this plan to the fullest, we believe that we can cut the number of infections by 75% in five years and by 90% in 10 years. Mm -hmm. Hence that goal that mm -hmm. the president mentioned of ending it as an epidemic within 10 years. So right now there's about 38,000 new infections each year. If we can get that down to 3,000 or less per year in 10 years, we will have essentially ended HIV as an epidemic in this country. So that's really what we're talking about. We have the tools and we just need to implement those tools in a concentrated way. Yeah, so those stats are, are remarkable um, that, the, that you have the data and it's so targeted that you know the very limited number of, you know, county hotspots, as you say, uh, where new infections are happening. Um, so what do you think has been the barrier to getting the necessary treatments and preventions out? Like, if you know where we need to go, and it sounds like we're going to move there now, like, why hasn't this happened 
before? Well, that's Did we just a, not yeah. know? Or? No, no, actually, it's a combination of things, and that's an excellent and appropriate question. I think it's the right tools with the right people and the right leadership at the right time. Uh, it has only been relatively recent where we've actually absolutely nailed down that if you treat someone and get the virus to below detectable level, you make it essentially impossible for that person to transmit the infection to an uninfected sexual partner. That gets to what we call U equals U. You may have heard of that. That means I have not. undetectable equals untransmissible, ah. you see? And that means that we know now scientifically that if we put that full court press on and get to as many people as we possibly can, that you will dramatically decrease the incidence of infection if you combine that with pre-exposure prophylaxis. We have examples of that in different localities in different regions of the world, but never on a broad countrywide uh, scale. And when you say, why not before? Well, it isn't something that wasn't tried before, but we didn't actually have all of the elements together. And as being led through the Department of Health and Human Services, we had a plan that was put together by Bob Redfield from the CDC, myself from NIH, the Assistant Secretary for Health, Brett Giroir, people from HRSA, people from the Indian Health Service. But it was the leadership of the department under Secretary Alex Azar to say, you know, this is a plan that I think will work. We're going to bring it to the president and hopefully he'll announce it, which he did at the State of the Union address. So it's kind of the right people in the right place with the right tools at the right time. Mm -hmm. uh, so a common criticism that you hear of the HIV medication is that it's very expensive, right? Uh, and so I'm sure maybe that might have been part of the uh, part of the issue. Um, so what do you say to that? And is that something that is being taken into consideration as you implement this new plan moving forward? Well, a absolutely. Well, f first of all, obviously uh, the the insurance, the, the the medical insurance is through the government and through private will be prepared to pay for it as you get more people in treatment. Uh, as you know, the Secretary Azar has been negotiating about getting the price of drugs down. Uh, the company that supplies the pre-exposure prophylaxis is essentially going to give 200,000 people free uh, uh, drug for a considerable period of time if they are not insured. And yet, even with that, we're trying to get the price down. So you're right. Uh, cost of drug is important, but there's a strong effort at the level of the secretary and the Department of HHS to get those prices down. Mm -hmm. And what kind of coordination does this um, effort take at the state level? Well, Obviously, we're in D.C. You know, that, that's a good question. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, historically, I mean, literally for their entire existence, has worked extremely closely with the state and local health authorities. In fact, that's the avenue in which they implement many of their programs. They are going to uh, implement and increase and complement their workforce to be able to do that, to get into the community level with the collaboration and the cooperation of the state and local health authorities. So... This is going to be something that is going to have to be implemented at the grassroots level. 
I mean, obviously, leadership will come from the Department of Health and Human Services, but the actual action on the ground will be at the local community level. We're going to engage community workers. We're going to engage health-based organizations. And we certainly need to engage the health departments of the state and local authorities. So obviously a lot has changed uh, since the 80s um, when the AIDS epidemic first became sort of more widely known across right. the country. Uh, and obviously a lot of the the stigma, stereotypes, and just terrible, wrong information um, that was spread through like everybody back then, a lot of that has changed and has been corrected. And I think people are a lot smarter and more or better educated about this issue now. But do you still feel that in some areas, either, you know, of the country or people or politicians, that there is still some education that needs to be happening, that oh. there's still a lack of knowledge um, that can be a barrier to, you know, eradicating this disease once and well, for all. Well, I'm not sure. I, I, first of all, I think you, 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 you hit upon something that's very important and it will be re- very relevant to the successful implementation of the program because many of these locations are in the southern part of the country. And stigma, I, I'm not sure it's lack of information, but it might be inherent stigma. Stigma against HIV, stigma against African-American who are men who have sex with men, particularly in regions of the country, which clearly historically have been stigmatizing certain populations, not only African-American men, but African-American men who have sex with men, uh, transgender individuals. So stigma is clearly the enemy of public health implementation. And that is something we're going to have to work on. It's not going to be easy because when I told you about the geographic hotspots, in several of the southern states that I mentioned, the rural areas are where there are a disproportionate number of infections. And in those rural areas of southern states, stigma gets in the way of the implementation of the program. So we have no illusions that this is going to be something easy. We're going to have to employ people at the local level, at the community level, to see if we could dissolve the stigma because that will always get in the way of the public health implementation that we're trying to perform. Do you think um, pop culture has a role to play here, um, like a positive role? Oh, definitely. I mean, anything that we could pull out of our bag of tricks to get people to appreciate the importance of the implementation of this program, absolutely. I mean, you get local people, pop culture people who are, you know, looked upon with a great deal of admiration in the community to help us with the implementation of these programs, that will be very important. And on a global scale, um, how are you feeling about how things are progressing? There are obviously a lot of, uh, you know, great strides were made, um, starting with uh, uh, second President Bush. Well, uh, you know, the PEPFAR program that was, uh, you know, I think one of the great legacies of President George W. Bush has really gone an enormous way in saving literally tens you know, of millions of, of lives throughout the world together with the global fund. So there have been great strides in certain countries in getting the level of infection low. Yet there are still some real challenges. One of the great challenges is in the country of South Africa, which has the most infections of any country in the world. It is very difficult, particularly in the situation where the number of young women 
uh, of childbearing age who are not only infected, what we call prevalence, they already are infected, but the rate of new infection among them, which we call incidence, the numbers are shocking. If you go to one part of South Africa, a region on the east coast called KwaZulu-Natal, and you go into the prenatal clinics of pregnant women who are coming in for prenatal care, in women who are young of the ages of you know, 18 to 27, 18 to 25, the prevalence of infection is a stunning 50% or more. Wow. That's something that is, is really needs to be addressed. The South African authorities are trying their best to do it uh, in the context of the Global Fund, in the context of PEPFAR. But when you say how are things globally, there are some areas of the world that are doing well and there are some that are still challenges. Is there more that the United States could be doing to help? You know, I think the United States is is done an extraordinary amount. I mean, the PEPFAR program alone has completely transformed HIV AIDS throughout the world. We are a contributor of anywhere from 25 to 33 percent of all of the global fund money comes from the United States. So, I mean, obviously anybody anywhere can do more, but I think the United States has really done from a global standpoint of their very fair share of what needs to be done in HIV AIDS. I want to switch topics and talk about another, um, I guess, epidemic. Uh, I don't know if that's the right medical term for what's happening with Ebola. Um, it appears that cases are on the rise again in uh, the Congo. Um, that is concerning a lot of health officials. Uh, what are you What are you seeing? Are you worried about what's yeah. happening? I, I don't think we could say it's on the rise again. I think it never slowed down. <laughs> so we we have an unfortunate situation of an outbreak now in the Democratic Republic of the Congo that is taking place in a region of the country in the northeast provinces, which makes it very very difficult to do the kind of infection control that we've been able and other countries have been able to successfully do when there have been outbreaks. And that has to do with the security in that part of the DRC, in which it makes it very difficult to do very comprehensive and complete contact tracing. One of the ways that you contain an outbreak of Ebola is you identify infected individuals and then you identify their contacts and the contacts of their contacts. Mm -hmm. And in this case now, we have a good tool. We have a vaccine that's pretty effective. And you vaccinate the people or you get the people who are infected and you make sure they're properly isolated and you make sure that people who are infected and die are properly buried in a way that does not contribute to the spread. The problem in the DRC, particularly in that region of the country, is that the violence and the attacks by various militias have made it very difficult to get to all of the contacts and the contacts of the contacts, mm -hmm. such that generally you would like to have identified all of the contacts, yet new cases are coming in and about 50% or more of them are often ones that are not traceable to any particular infection, which means we don't have our arms around the problem where there are still infections springing up and we don't know what the source of that is. And that's the reason why 
in a very chronic way, every day, you know, you get more cases, 10, 15, 20 cases that you get each day, and it hasn't slowed down. It's just smoldering along. And that's the reason why the officials at the Democratic Republic of the Congo have sort of reorganized their approach to this. Mm-hmm. We have been involved, we, the United States, um, in a clinical trial to test drugs to see which one works so that we can better treat individuals. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention have been trying to, uh, and they've done an amazing job, of training people about how to respond. The only difficulty is it's very difficult to get U.S. personnel into the hotspot zones because of the security issue. Wow. Uh, well, that is uh, that is not encouraging. Um, but it, I guess if I want to put a silver lining here, it's that at least the local government recognizes that it has a problem and is trying to yeah. adjust uh, to address it. Indeed. Uh, I want to ask one last question. Um, you know, I am the proud mother of a two-and-a-half-year-old tyrant and uh, you know as such we had to go through our battery of you know vaccines um and you know he loved that uh and you know as any good parent you read up about everything that is happening and of course you see the controversies or conversations happening around vaccines um and autism and you know i've got a lot of uh people in my family who like to bicker back and forth about it and I'm very much a no science is science and vaccines are safe and if we don't vaccinate our children we have things like measles outbreaks when they shouldn't be happening uh so like what do you make of this seemingly sudden rise in the quote-unquote anti-vax movement and is this going to be a big problem in this country where diseases that we thought we had controlled or eradicated are going to start coming back? Well, I think what's happened this year in New York City, particularly in the Williamsburg section of Brooklyn and in the Rockland County, just north Mm -hmm. of the city, is a good example of what happens when communities decide that they don't want to vaccinate their children. And if you look at the reluctance to get vaccinated, it's really multifactorial. Much of it is based literally on misinformation. The particular issue in question that always comes up is their association between the measles, mumps, rubella vaccination and autism. And the answer to that is absolutely not. That has been debunked multiple times. The source of that information is fraudulent information that came from the UK, from Great Britain, um, by a physician who has since lost his license and has been completely disgraced in the UK because of the proposal and the fraudulent fraudulent data that said that the the, uh, measles, mumps, rubella vaccine was associated with autism. It certainly is not. Vaccines are clearly very safe. There are some adverse events. They're extremely rare. If you do not vaccinate the children, you will see the kinds of outbreaks we saw in the New York City area. And that's something that is entirely avoidable. So what we need to do is to get the correct information out. Some people um, look upon vaccinations because it's interesting. Vaccines are kind of a victim of their own success. Mm -hmm. They've suppressed diseases that decades and decades ago frightened people. You know, 
congenital rubella syndrome when pregnant women would get rubella and their children would get a syndrome that is really devastating. Measles can be a very serious disease leading to pneumonias and complications and even deaths. When that was going on in this country, there was no concern about getting vaccinated. Right. Now that we've essentially suppressed all these diseases, people inappropriately look and say, well, I don't need a vaccine. And they have what I call libertarianism taken to the extreme. <laughs> and they have a variety of objections, philosophical objections or what have you. When that gets to the point where the level of vaccination gets below a certain critical level, then you get the kinds of outbreaks that we've seen and that I've mentioned that had taken place in New York City. So we've got to be very careful that if we misinterpret this issue about vaccines and say, oh, we don't need to get vaccinated because either I don't want to get vaccinated or vaccines are unsafe, which is untrue. Mm -hmm. Then we're going to turn back the clock to a time when there was serious disease that a vaccine preventable. Hopefully we never get to that point. I hope not. <laughs> we like to end our interviews asking our guests um, what they do in their spare time when they are not uh, doing their day job, in your case, um, trying to save the world from infectious diseases. Uh, so what, uh, you know, what book are you reading currently? You know, what television do you like to watch? Is there a, a, you know, a great album you've recently listened to? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm an unabashed workaholic, so I can't give you a lot of fun things <laughs> that I do because I do get consumed with the responsibilities we have. But what I do to relax, I've you know, always been athletic throughout my life. So I've been I run, I run a few miles, like three to four miles a day, every day. That wow. really releases tension. Uh, I also like to read. Uh, um, the book that I'm reading right now is a, a spy novel by Daniel Silva, a Washington, D.C. writer called The New Girl. Uh, and I'm a little bit of a news junkie, so when I get a chance, I tend to follow the news. But... Other than that, I don't have much time for anything else. <laughs> uh, well, that sounds uh, good, except for the watching the news part. That's that's not relaxing. That can but... depress you. <laughs> exactly. Yes, I know, I know. Uh, Dr. Fauci, thank you so much for joining us it's, on Thinking Cat. It's my pleasure. It's good to be with you. Thinking Cap is produced and edited by Kyle Epstein. He also wrote our theme music. Chris Ford is our researcher. And Matt Ingram made our logo. Listen and subscribe to Thinking Cap on SoundCloud, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts.